Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. When I got to about age 45, I noticed that I started to gain weight in my midsection. As I went into perimenopause and menopause, it started to get harder and harder and harder to lose weight and easier to gain weight. I got into weightlifting three times a week. I was stretching. I was walking five days a week for 30 to 45 minutes. And all these different approaches I tried, different herbs, different things, I don't eat packaged food, and nothing has been working. People have said, it's so confusing, the information out there. They say, oh, you have to walk at least 30 minutes a day, but no, you should really walk two hours a day. No, forget that. Just do weightlifting three times a week. If you do weightlifting three times a week, everything will be fine. Here comes Phil Campbell, the author of Ready, Set, Go, Synergy Fitness, a total breakthrough paradigm in the area of fitness. Those of you that have heard about him know that in Oprah's O Magazine, he is considered creating the fastest working workout. He has something called exercise-induced growth hormone workout that potentiates a growth hormone raise between 450 and 560%. It's a 20-minute-a-day discipline of working out And we're going to talk about what that is because there are rules and regulations for this, but it's actually anaerobic, not aerobic workouts for 20 minutes a day. And it's all about releasing HGH hormone during exercise. Phil Campbell's been a very renowned trainer and coach in the area of speed and strength for over 35 years. He has two advanced degrees, both in health services and in sports medicine, people fly all over the world to see him because of his breakthrough results and the compilation of research that he's synergized together to bring us a whole new way to keep our growth hormone at the highest level possible in only 20 minutes a day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Phil Campbell to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Kim, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Well, it's true. It's really, really true. Now, I just finished your book. I haven't actually begun yet. But the first thing I wanted to do is I want you to give us a context for how it is that we are increasing our growth hormone, what that means, in only 20 minutes a day. Explain it to the listeners. Well, in many respects, it's it's the Sprint 8 cardio program, which is really nothing more than scientific play. Uh, a lot of times... Uh, you know, I, how many times do you see uh, uh, parents tell their young children or young children coming in and talk to their parents, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to go run uh, 10 miles a day at a seven-minute pace. You know, that's not what children do naturally. What children do naturally is they sprint, they run, they recruit all three muscle fiber types, they work all three energy systems, and they're releasing growth hormone like crazy. Now, that's going to happen, uh, you know, when kids are young, but what the research shows us today is you can actually do a form of exercise, and if you do it correctly, by working your heart muscle anaerobically, so you condition your heart muscle not only for the aerobic process of life, but the anaerobic processes of life, uh, which seems to get us in problems once we get stressed and that sort of thing, but also works all three muscle fiber types that we maintain all of our lives. We just let uh, the uh, fast-switch fiber cells get small and wimpy because we don't use them. Uh, and, and with that, a lot of times uh, people start gaining weight around middle age. Uh, and they, the researchers have actually named that the middle age spread. We've laughed about it. We've kid about it for years. But it's the this called the somatopause, and it's tied directly to the way your body releases 
growth hormone throughout aging. So that very same substance that athletes are uh, been accused of injecting, uh, your body releases naturally, and the researchers actually say it actually mimics taking injections of growth hormone when you exercise correctly, which is scientific play, so it doesn't take long. That's the great thing about it. Let's talk a little bit about the actual process itself, because this is 20 minutes. This is going to blow the mind of a lot of people who think they have to be at the gym for hours, and I want you to explain how it works. Well, there's several ways to accomplish the Sprint 8 program. And, and first of all, one of the underlying principles is it's not body by feel or body by this and so. If we were to interview the body itself and ask the body, all right, we got all these people on TV selling equipment, all these people telling us how to exercise, the body is telling us exactly how to do it. And what the body is saying to us is, is when you exercise this way, I release this hormone that's so powerful that uh, – it, uh, it, 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 it's illegal for athletes to use it because it improves performance. And on average case, when you inject growth hormone, uh, it pulls off 14.4% body fat, puts on 8% lean muscle mass. And what's significantly meaningful to a lot of women is it thickens your skin by 7.1%. And because of that, it fills in the wrinkles, and we all look a lot younger. So it does many, many great things. Uh, maybe things that we don't even recognize that the body's doing for us yet in a, in a form of other hormones. There's basically one new hormone discovered every year. There are over 100 hormones now. Uh, dopamine, serotonin, those hormones that uh, replicate natural Prozac, if you would, uh, are released with this type of exercise. And it's really nothing more than scientific play for adults in a safe way. So the way you would do Sprint 8, uh, 20 minutes, three times a week, which matches the new guidelines for vigorous intensity cardio by the American Heart Association and the American College of Sports Medicine, is basically uh, you can do it on any type of cardio equipment as long as you can get totally exhausted uh, within 30 seconds or less. And the reason why that's important is what we call the 30-second rule. If you, you know, Your body always sends slow-twitch fiber to accomplish the task first. But when, it, but when your brain, your nervous system, sense that velocity of movement, it basically says slow twitch is not adequate. I'm going to recruit this fast twitch fiber that's been sitting there dormant in case you need to run away from somebody or go run a ball down at the net uh, when you're playing tennis. And so your body's trying not to use that because when you have to oxygenate quite literally twice the muscle fiber in your body, the slow and the fast twitch fiber, then your heart muscle has to work a lot harder anaerobically. And when it does that, you know, you, it, within that whole process, your body raises the temperature, releases lactic acid, and for whatever reason, the body releases growth hormone. It's such a powerful force that it actually mimics taking injections of them. And that's why, uh, Kim, there's no test for Olympic athletes for growth hormone today because if you were to do the sprint eight and they were to pull your blood to check you for uh, injecting growth hormone, you would test false positive. That's the type of hormone. So we're talking about the same hormone that makes children grow tall. Dr. T.C. Welbert, LSU Medical Center, argues that the, the, the role of growth hormone is a perfect name until you reach your full height. But once you reach your full height, it should be called your fitness hormone. And I'd have to agree with that because when we use exercise and target at releasing maximum amounts of growth hormone, wonderful, great things happen to the body. And to some degree, you step out, it seems like you step out of a calorie and carbohydrate count world. So like him, what did carbohydrates and calories mean to you back when you were playing high-level competitive tennis? It really meant everything. 
course, the whole thinking was different then. I was told to have carbs before I played and protein afterward. There wasn't the anti-aging paradigm. You didn't think about taking amino acids or vitamins or herbs. There wasn't any of that thinking then. Maybe there was at the highest levels, but it really was just about staying hydrated and learning how to pace yourself and rest. But I was a servant volleyer in tennis, so I used to get tired a lot because I was an attack-style player. Serve and volley, serve and come in, close in on the opponent. It was an exhausting form of play, and it was high, high, high bursts. And what happens when you do that is basically a hard tennis match would be similar to doing sprint eight, but you can do it on any piece of cardio equipment in 20 minutes, do it correctly. Basically involves a three-minute warm-up, nice and easy if you're on some type of a machine that has 20 levels. For example, you'd put it on level two, go nice and easy for three minutes to get warmed up, and then put it on level 10 or so, depending on the machine and go all out as fast as you can for 30 seconds. But it has to be the level of intensity that you could not go longer than 30 seconds, where that means you paced and, and, and probably didn't recruit uh, both types of fast-switch fibers. Actually, two types of fast-switch fiber uh, in that uh, classification. There's what we call fast-switch 2A fiber that moves five times faster than slow, and the fast-switch 2B fiber, or 2X fiber, some researchers call it, moves 10 times faster than slow. That's about 30% of your muscle fiber. Now, sometimes we read articles and we say, well, you know, this is a Kenyan cross-country runner. He's got all slow-switch fiber. Well, if you do a biopsy on somebody that runs cross-country, you're going to see a lot of slow-switch fiber. If you do a biopsy on a sprinter, you're going to see a lot of fast-switch fiber because we know your body adapts to the way you train. For athletes, when we're working with athletes, if they train fast, they get fast because your body adapts to that by, by building stronger uh, fast fiber cells. And actually, in a growth hormone release environment, the research shows that you actually replicate your fast fiber cells. So if athletes want to get faster, we use a growth hormone releasing model within their training to try to maximize that wonderful hormone that's so powerful, again, that, that it's, you know, it's illegal to inject artificially. But your body does the same thing uh, naturally with the sprint eight. So it's all out for 30 seconds, then you drop it back to level two for a minute and a half as an active recovery just to recover. Uh, if you're sprint swimming, for example, it would be sprint swimming hard and fast for 25 meters, hanging on the side of the pool uh, for a minute and a half or dog pedaling back nice and easy for a minute and a half, and that's that's one sprint sequence. So the key is to build up to eight, uh, and it sounds pretty easy because out of the 20 minutes, only four minutes is hard anaerobic exercise, but it's the hardest four minutes of your life. Uh, typically, if you, look at a, if you look at a week's time, we're asking people to do an hour's worth of cardio, of which 12 minutes, only 12 minutes, is anaerobic. But if you think about it, that fast-switch fiber lines up your ATP PC energy system of six to eight seconds worth of stored-up energy. That's taken care. Of, you know that takes care of the first part of the the the, uh, the the sprint cardio. But then what happens after that is that uh, you know your body releases lactic acid in a major way. And for 20 years, we taught that lactic acid makes you sore. Now we know that that's not true. Lactic acid's actually reprocessed in your body like a ventless fireplace. It actually reprocesses that for energy. So we're learning so many things about the body, but it points back to what children do naturally, and that is play. I read that in your book that what we learned about lactic acid was wrong. But what does make you sore? Well, the leading theory is that we, the reason we train in the first place, the reason people go to the gym 
is not to do X amount of reps or X amount of training. The benefit comes from creating microfiber tears in the muscle fiber. So in other words, when we work out and we play hard and we go to the gym and do bench press, for example, you're creating microfiber tears in the you know, front deltoids and also your chest muscles. And when you sleep at night, the body heals those microfiber tears back bigger and stronger. And that's exactly why we train, and that's the benefits from training. So when and, and what people generally refer to as the 10% rule, if you add training volume more than 10%, you create more microfiber tears than you normally should when you train that your body's accustomed to, Therefore, you get sore. So it's like a self-defense mechanism from the body. Uh, the, the muscle sometimes does heat up a little bit and get inflamed, but you know, sometimes it's just really a signal from your brain through your nervous system to you saying, hey, back off this. I'm sore. I need more rest before I'm ready to go again. And why is it three times a week versus five times a week? That's a great question. When you're working slow-twitch fiber, and we see this in a lot of athletes as well as adults. When you're working slow-twitch fiber, that fiber can repair itself quicker because it, it, it's smaller muscle fiber than the, than the uh, fast fiber cells, but it repairs itself pretty much daily. The research shows, however, for and within athletes, and I'm sure it's going to apply to adults as well, that it takes about 48 hours for that muscle fiber to totally heal back. The muscle cells are bigger, uh, and for whatever reason, it takes about 48 hours. So for that reason, a lot of coaches train uh, athletes from professional ranks uh, all the way down, Heavy light, heavy light. That doesn't mean you can't train the next day after doing a hard, fast fiber workout, but it does mean that, that those muscle fiber cells have not totally healed themselves. And there's another point, too, and that is the research shows that the body processes uh, dietary glucose very efficiently for two and a half days after you train. Now, your your metabolism actually stays revved up for nine days. So some people make the claim, well, if you do this program, your metabolism is going to stay up for nine days. And that's true almost with any exercise. But it significantly drops off about two and a half days. So in a perfect world, if you train every other day, then you're setting your body up to process glucose more efficiently for those two days. But what we tell people with sprint aid is get it in three times a week, even if it's back-to-back. Just get it in three times a week because people are so time crunched today, and that needs to be the goal. But in a perfect world, it would be every other. Now, I want to talk to you from the point of view of a listener like myself, considering themselves too heavy, carrying too much extra body fat, wanting to do this, committing to do this, and being scared they may sprain something because they're carrying too much weight when they go into full intensity which is part of why I know you said you have to build up to this. So talk to us about how that translates in practicality. How do we build up to this? Well, when you, if you're actually running a sprint eight, a whole different set of rules apply because you're taking your whole body weight and basically with one of your hamstrings and glute muscles, you're propelling your feet, your, your body about 12 feet forward. So when you're talking about running, it's, it's altogether different because you do have to have a, a progressive ramp up to get your body accustomed to striding out more uh, than, than you would normally and to work that fast switch fiber to get it stronger or hamstrings can be injured that way. But when you're using a piece of cardio uh, that basically protects your hamstrings to some degree because you're not, you're, you're riding a machine rather than carrying your whole body weight and throwing it forward, uh, the, the rule is you've got to go th- or shoot for 30 seconds. If you just can't go more than 30 seconds, you win. If you go more than 30 seconds, more probably than not, means that you paced, you didn't recruit your fast fiber, and you missed the benchmarks to release 
growth hormone. So on a piece of equipment, what we typically recommend, uh, and it can also be a treadmill, but it's still 30 seconds on a treadmill. Even though you're running, even though you may be running uphill, you're still towing off as a machine, the belt comes under you, whereas if you're actually running outside, you're propelling your body weight forward. It's much, much more intense than running on a treadmill. How interesting. I never even thought about the treadmill versus running outside that way. How interesting. And, and that, that's why that's why people can, I run a five-minute mile on my treadmill, but I get outside and it's seven or eight. It's just, it's not, and even though it can be uphill, you're still towing off as the machine's coming under you. So you're still riding machine. It's running, but you're riding machine as well. But anytime your body weight's resting on a machine, uh, that's going to lessen intensity to some degree. And that's not bad. That just means you have to make up for that intensity by going a little bit faster and, or by adding resistance on it. So typically, uh, uh, the way we like to show people how to do this is on a recumbent cycle. One is because most people try to recumbent cycle, and they understand that I can sit on this thing for an hour, and I don't get anything out of it. In a slow-twitch world, they're right. A recumbent cycle in a slow-twitch world is not much. But in the fast-twitch world, it, it is a great piece of equipment, and, it, and we actually recommend it and use it with uh, some cross-country Kenyans I've worked with before. Uh, when we won the conference championship, and he actually did a sprint eight on a recumbent cycle because he's working exactly the same muscles that propel the movement of running, but he's giving a skeleton a day off. And so he was able to do more training than his competitors and get off the road, do less mileage to avoid those nagging injuries. But anyway, on the recumbent cycle, you'd probably do level two to warm up, uh, after you get three minute warm up in, hit level ten, and then the goal is to go all out for thirty seconds. And what we see there is the weakness of your fast or the strength or weakness of your fast switch fiber basically limits people from going fast enough to really hurt themselves to some degree. Now we can never say exercise is safe. You always have to you know recommend, hey, if you've got a question about it, go see your physician, make sure your heart muscles checked out. But typically, have you ever heard of a sprinter dying from a heart attack? It's usually the long-distance runners, right? Exactly. Every year, people die from running raw. You can go in the endurance energy system with slow-twitch fiber. You can physically push your body hard enough to kill your body. I mean, that happens every year. But I've never heard of. Maybe there's a case. I've just never heard of, never seen it, looked for it. Never heard of a 100-meter sprinter ever dying from a 100-meter sprint. I mean, those guys are in shape. Uh, aerobically as well as anaerobically, but it's almost like the weakness of your, there's a cell, you know, it's like the body puts in a self-defense mechanism uh, because, you you know, when you first start, uh, you can't go very fast if you don't have strong fast-switch fiber. But as your fast-switch fiber gets stronger, so does the anaerobic process of your heart muscle, and it's almost like the two go together and are meant to go together. Everything you're saying is the opposite of a lot of the false beliefs many of us, myself included, have been told and ingested and taught about fitness. You say in the book, natural growth hormone pulses 12 times a day. Can you talk about that? Well, the, the research shows there's a natural release of growth hormone about 12 times a day. And as we get older, the amount released diminishes. However, there's a couple of studies that suggest the longer you do sprint eight, you're training your pituitary to release more uh, during a release of growth hormone. And I really think that's true. Uh, you see that over and over. We just did a study at King Stars Medical Center. Uh, where I'm in the process, we've just built a nice new fitness center here and, and building a performance research center for athletes now. But we just did a study with about 20 middle-aged nurses, and, and and we gave them a one-hour lecture about like what you're hearing right now. This is how you do sprint eight, 
Uh, we did a, uh, a resting uh, uh, internal medicine panel to look at uh, typical measurements in a medical setting indicative of good health, like you know sugar, your your cholesterol, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. We did growth hormone resting, and then they went and did sprint eight. Every how many they could do starting, and that's usually about two to three for most people just starting out. They immediately within thirty minutes come back to the hospital and would pull their blood to make sure that they're releasing growth hormone. Average case. Uh, growth hormone was at least uh, 498%, and that's for middle-aged adults. The research cited in the book, the most of the studies there were done on young college-age students that happened to be in a, at a medical university. But this study shows, and it's about ready to be published, uh, that for middle-aged women, mostly women, the, uh, the increase of growth hormone was huge. What's really interesting, the average body fat loss was 28%. Wow. During that time. Wow. 28%, there were only 9 pounds, nine to right at just a little bit under 10 pounds on average lost. However, for many of the women, it, and, I, and our hospital is in Mississippi. We're in the fattest state in America, and West Virginia knocked us off for a couple of months this past year, but we <laughs> earned it right back. We're still the fattest state in America. And so, and, and our nurse employees are pretty, uh, uh, pretty big, big, you know, examples of that to some degree, uh, middle-aged nurses. And uh, we've had almost remark people look like they've lost whole human beings in size, but they've really not lost, uh, you know, all that much weight because they put on muscle, but body fat has dropped substantially. And the big surprise in the study, though, when you would probably get some results like that, uh, that, that was a little bit more, 28% in eight weeks, which is really pretty phenomenal. But we also learned that for likely statin users for cholesterol issues, that uh, the Sprenate actually mimics the results of statin drugs. Wow. So we're talking about a $14 billion industry, the number one drug uh, industry, uh, number one selling drug in America is a statin drug to clo- control cholesterol. And uh, we had uh, drops anywhere between 31. One of the test subjects had a 63-point drop. Another one had a 50-point drop. Most had 30-point drops in cholesterol. We had one of the uh, uh, test subjects who uh, is one of our leading nurses here, um, very lean, looks like a model. Uh, we didn't think she really needed to lose weight, but she wanted to be in the study, so she volunteered and she jumped in. But her body fat went from 31% to 18%, but her cholesterol went from 273 to 190 in eight weeks. And this is without any dieting. We tell them, don't diet. The only variable should be sprint eight three times a week. Do whatever you're doing. So we're, we're in a hospital in the fattest state in America, we got a 28% body fat reduction without diet. Now, what would happen if we had dieting to it? It has to be better, but we'd like to get a grant and, and, and study that in the future. But what's interesting is that same group now that did the eight-week study, they're coming up on their six-month study. And what, and what we're seeing, and we don't have the data, they're just starting to do the test right now, but the growth hormone release stayed the same or greater than, than uh, 500%. Our chief nurse executive went through it. Uh, her, her growth hormone release was 988%. And so that actually mimics taking growth hormone injections. And what we see, the results actually mimic. You can go and get, take growth hormone injections and get pretty good results, but there, obviously there's side effects when you inject something that costs $1,000 a month that does that artificially. But when you do it naturally the way the body was made to do it, which is scientific play, 20 minutes, three times a week, of which 12 minutes a week is hard exercise without dieting, we had a 28% body fat loss for the first eight weeks, but several of those now are up to 50-pound body fat loss. Uh, my administrative assistant uh, actually went through the program. She's coming up on six months. 
she uh, has lost a little bit over 50 pounds, and her body fat went from 44% to 26%. Now, she has still some room to go, and she'll tell you that, but the results are almost unbelievable that in six months' time, without dieting, this is what's happened. This is really a kind of revolution in the area of fitness and fat loss and wellness because most of us are not paying attention to these kind of details. It flies in the face of everything we've been told. Don't you agree? Oh, I, I, I do. When I, you know, Vision Fitness has my Sprint 8 cardio program and, and all their equipment. And when I first went up there, that one of their, their leaders called and said, hey, we're Vision Fitness. We need to be visionary. Let's see what this guy's saying. Because they were all long, slow marathoners, basically, and long, slow cyclists. And I was supposed to be there for an hour, and they kept me for four hours and said, this guy's doing a study after study, but, you know, everybody's telling us long, slow, but, man, what he's saying makes sense. And so they tested the program themselves. The president's wife, I think, lost 30 pounds in eight weeks, and they tested for eight weeks, called back, said, man, there's something to this. Uh, and in those days, I had a few studies to point to the fact that we should be looking at how the body's telling us to exercise, not just creating and guessing, but we've learned so much more about the body and how muscles work and that sort of thing about the three energy systems. I mean, just think about it. For 20 years, we taught that lactic acid made you sore. You couldn't pass a test unless you said lactic acid sore. And even today, I have some exercise physiologists who graduated, you know, 20 years ago. They'll look at me like, what did you say? Lactic acid? What? What? And then I have to get the studies and show them. And, and the studies are there. I mean, lactic acid has nothing to do with soreness. Uh, it's reprocessing the body. And actually, it's your friend because you have to reach that level where lactic acid is significantly elevating your body for a short period of time in order to release growth hormone. This is truly new knowledge. Now, you say in the book that it's very important not to eat fat before you exercise and not to eat sugar afterward. But a lot of things convert to sugar. So what do you mean by don't eat sugar afterwards? That is a controversial question. And, and, and here, here's why. If I'm working with an athlete, uh, uh, first of all, let me hit the fat piece real quick. What the studies say, if you eat a heavy, high-fat meal, which would be equal to like two Big Macs and two Biggie Fries, that's the kind of fat we're talking about that will blunt the release of growth hormone if you if you go eat something like that before uh, you do Sprint 8. And then I always get asked, well, what about one Big Mac? And the answer is, we don't know. What about butter on a piece of toast? Well, that's for most people, that's probably not going to impact it. But what we know is this huge, this real super, super heavy high-fat meal but we don't really have research. I cannot back up any, anything less than that because we don't have studies because exercise does not have a drug rep. You know, exercise, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to get research funds for that. If you've got a drug, it's easy, easy to uh, get research funds. But it's hard for exercise to do that. A lot of exercise uh, guys in research settings have to struggle to get just basic information. So we would love to test that here at King Stars Medical Center to find out what is the lower limit because we really don't know. We just know that if it's tons loaded with fat, that causes a, a, a blunting of, you still release growth hormone. Just the amount of release is blunted because of that. Now on the sugar afterwards issue, what, what we know is, uh, well, first of all, if I work with young athletes, we know that studies by, by John, Dr. John Ivey, who's a great research at the University of Texas, on young cyclists who are trying to recover. Recovery is their main goal because they're trying to recover so they can go compete four or five days in a row. 
Uh, the best way to recover, the quickest way to recover, is to get a four-to-one ratio of carbohydrates to protein within 30 minutes of exercise. Recovery does start quicker when you do that. However, recovery, when you think about the fast fiber, working fast fat, fast switch fiber and letting heal, that's a that's a 48-hour process. So you have to kind of balance what your goals are. If your goals are quick recovery, then you want the four-to-one ratio: four carbs to one gram of protein. Okay. That that's kind of that's the current model, and and that, there's really some mainstream research to show that's the best way to jumpstart recovery. However. If you're middle-aged and maximizing growth hormone for a two-hour synergy window, where they show in numerous studies, University of Virginia Medical Center and several other places, that once exercise-induced growth hormone is released, it stays in your body for going going after a body fat for two full hours uh, after exercise, just like you're doing cardio for two hours, except even more intense than that. That's what that's what that hormone will do for your body if you if you keep it circulating. But what they know is. If you spike insulin for whatever reason, some type of protection mechanism that they, we don't really totally understand yet, but if you spike insulin, it releases a hormone called somatostatin that for whatever reason shuts down growth hormone during that two-hour synergy window. Let's talk about your recommendation. What do you eat before you do this, or do you eat anything before this? Well, I always like a little carbohydrates before to help fuel the intensity uh, of the, of the sprint egg. Afterwards, it just depends on if somebody's diabetic, pre-diabetic, or where they where they fall on the metabolic syndrome uh, uh, scale. What happens is uh, the research shows that you know diabetics do not produce, uh, or they or their their body does not uh, uh, digest glucose correctly. They become basically a fat making machine because they have so much insulin resistance. Uh, then if somebody's mean and lean, they process glucose very normally. So, so that's why somebody that's you know 16 lean and mean that's an athlete, they can eat a pecan pie uh, and not gain a pound of weight. Where somebody that's diabetic or pre-diabetic can walk by a pecan pie and gain <laughs> weight. And so, what happens? The research is pretty clear too that that in between that, there's a level they call it metabolic syndrome, and and you know has other things involved in it. But research shows several major studies that show there's a, there's a direct correlation during that process as somebody goes from being lean and mean and young to uh, you know overweight, obese, and insulin resistant. That that tr- that trip that they take is directly related to. Uh, muscle to body fat composition. So the more muscle you have, the more bot, the the more your muscle takes up the glucose in your diet, and and keeps you from having insulin resistance. So it's very very positive for us to to build muscle for that reason, uh, and and maintain muscle throughout your life. It allows you to eat some bad carbs and take care of it, like like when it had when you were young, uh, if you have more muscle. So where, wherever somebody is on that. That's what they could have in the way of carbohydrates. So it's basically it's a moving target. If they've had a, a, a you know a, a fight with their spouse, if they've had a stressful day, if they're not getting enough sleepy, that, uh, asleep, that almost that also impacts uh, insulin resistance. So we can't just say, hey, this is what you need to eat afterwards. What a good recommendation would be is a handful of cashews, getting about twenty to twenty-five grams of protein. We know that's very positive. Uh, within 30 minutes of training, but the amount of carbohydrates you can have is 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 a moving target. 
the mere fact that you're getting protein with the carbs negates the glycemic impact of the carbohydrates. But depending on where someone is on that metabolic syndrome X scale determines how many carbs they can get. For most people, they can probably have some carbohydrates along with it as long as it's not that high glycemic, uh, uh, you know, straight sugar type of carbohydrate afterwards. Uh, where somebody's young, lean, and mean, they can probably have some high glycemic carbs along with the protein, and they're, and they're still going to maintain and not shut down that growth hormone release from exercise. Now, I know you talked about the importance of having L-glutamine two grams before you do sprint eight. L-glutamine has a fantastic reputation. I know you said it in the book, but I thought maybe just a brief couple of seconds of why before. Well, there's a lot. There's quite a few studies now. There's really a body of research on L-glutamine, but the major researchers show that two grams, uh, you know, I know sometimes bodybuilders will take five to 30 grams a day and, and people are throwing it down. And, uh, but what the research shows when you're looking at the growth hormone release impact, if you take it before training, 30 minutes to an hour before training, that that can truly help facilitate the release of exercise-induced growth hormone. A lot of times, L-glutamine is taken after exercise, and the reason why is when you exercise, your blood glutamine levels drop straight down. If you take it prophylactically before, then you probably have a better shot at releasing more growth hormone during the, during the workout, and when when rather than it just dropping straight down and you not have a lot of energy at the end of the workout, more probably than not, you will have more energy because your blood glutamine levels are a little bit higher. They still drop. Don't get me wrong. They still drop pretty quickly, but they drop a little bit slower if you take the L-glutamine before. And two grams of L-glutamine, I remember my son and I bought a, a little keg of it, uh, and it lasts for $23. It lasted something like nine months. It's very inexpensive, uh, and, uh, you know, when, when, but you'll find a lot of people say that's a weenie dose, uh, but there's a couple studies that suggest that taking too much L-glutamine uh, can clog up the process as well. So what we know is, is two grams is safe. Uh, uh, one of the researchers that cites two grams in his uh, research said, but in a white paper to incoming athletes at a major university telling them how they can get the edge on, on training to beat other athletes in, in competition is actually taking between two and three grams. The research says two. Same researcher that, that says two in his research says to athletes take two to three, but probably five grams or more uh, it would more probably than not clog the process and uh, where you don't get the benefit. So L-glue is very, very positive before. So the recommendation in the book, which is based on several mainstream studies, would say two grams before. One of the things I really appreciate about what you do and the way you steward what you do is that you're all about the results and you're all about the evidence, which I love. It's not just a synthesis of your opinions. You're down deep in the research, the most current research, which I love and appreciate, and I'm sure the audience will. It is an interesting thing to note that the oxygen debt is comparable to releasing the HGH, that there's something about oxygen debt when you do this at high intensity that releases HGH. And I would imagine also that there are people out there thinking, well, if I go at this high of an intensity, even for 30 seconds wouldn't that put the heart at risk? And yet in your book, correct me if I'm wrong, but you wrote about how it decreases your risk. It, it will over time. Now, you always have to, you know, caution if someone has a, an issue, uh, 
concerning the heart, always we always want to send them to their physician to uh, make sure they're they're that the phys- they're clear for that. But it's interesting to note that just a, uh, last month, Wall Street Journal had a major report uh, where they uh, cited what's happening at Mayo Clinic and a study in Norway where they actually do for heart people that have had heart attacks within about two days. They're using now anaerobic sprint eight type training. That's good to know. That's very, just, very good to know. I mean, that's, know. that's, uh, so while we don't want to practice medicine, somebody has an issue with a, you know, a heart, go get that checked out. But if you think about it, if you, you know, the heart basically has two processes, a aerobic process and an anaerobic process. So we see athletes all the time as well as adults. They can do things aerobically because they've conditioned their heart muscle for the anaerobic parts of life. But where we get in trouble is the anaerobic things in life. Your daughter's just been in a car wreck. You know, we, it, we, but when you do sprint eight, you're conditioning your heart muscle to handle those hard, stressful, piece, high, bur- high burst of intensity moments in life. So can't help but think that's going to help every adult long term. Now, you don't want to have a heart attack doing that, but you want to slowly start with sprint eight and think in terms of the heart has two processes. I want to be conditioned for both processes. And the way you do that is sprint eight basically is an hour a week of exercise, an hour a week of aerobic exercise, of which 12 minutes is anaerobic. And that's all it takes because it lines up with your ATP synergy system. It lines up with your fat switch muscle fiber that's not meant to endure. So you don't have to work it in endurance system. You just have to recruit it to make sure it's worked for brief moments at a time. And that's why sprint is almost the perfect way to do that. But our 30-second rule is if you can go longer than 30 seconds, you probably didn't work your heart muscle anaerobically. But it needs to be the type of thing that, that you're going so hard and fast that at 10 seconds you're saying, holy smoke, I can't believe I listened to Southerner taught me in doing this. At 15 <laughs> seconds, you want off of it. And those last five seconds seem like they take forever and you just barely finish the 30-second sprint. Then you're doing it correctly. That's the sprint eight. That's the type of exercise you have to do in order to get this huge release of growth hormone that actually mimics taking injections of it. Difficult question. I'm sure you're asked it all the time, but how is this different than interval training? Because it sounds similar, but it's not. If you're talking to an Olympic coach, it's going to be very similar to the same thing. But when you talk to anybody, I've worked with over 18,000 athletes over the last uh, 30-something years now, and when I say interval training, it's interpreted as slightly increasing intensity and going for a minute. If you can go for more than 30 seconds, you're not recruiting that fast switch fiber. So it would be a sprint interval, but interval training gets interpreted being far less intensity. When we use the term sprint cardio, which is what it really is, it makes uh, interval training look like kindergarten versus college. This is really, really demanding. It's the hardest exercise you can do. But with that, you get to choose release of growth hormone, condition both processes of your heart muscle, work all three muscle fiber types, and great thing, and you get unbelievable results with it. That was a good explanation. Another thing that you talked about that I felt was very important is antioxidants. Now, how does the release of this level of growth hormone relate to the realm of antioxidants and free radicals? Because this is very important. People are given such different information. Don't exercise too hard. You'll create too many free radicals. What's the story on this from your view? 
there's there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Probably the the mainstream way would be from the mitochondria. Like what we know at the cellular level is that that if we were to do a biopsy of your vasculitis, this big muscle on the side of your thigh, that most people would have about six mitochondria per cell. And uh, and the research is clear. When you do research, say quote near maximum intensity exercise, eight weeks time, that number will be doubled, and the output of your mitochondria, which actually creates energy in your body, so all your energy comes from the ATP PC energy system, but it comes through the mitochondria at the cellular level. So the way we work with athletes to increase endurance or adults, if you want to have more endurance, is you've got to create more mitochondria yourself. Now, on the other side of that, I had a physician once and say, Phil, are you aware that, that all this bad stuff uh, uh, that's coming into your body through the oxygen we breathe goes through your mitochondria? Absolutely. If you if you hang out beside some uh, uh, a, a lot of exhaust of a lot of cars, uh, your mitochondria uh, are going to bring some bad stuff in your body. Uh, but then the other point of view would be when you are doing anaerobic exercise, you send your the red cells in your body on a hunt to absorb all the oxygen they get because they can't get enough. They can't get enough oxygen. So basically your body's trying to go get this. So anything that could be oxidized in your body, like the free radicals, then your body itself is going after that to suck that up. Uh, and, I, it's, and, and that's my own personal theory on that. But on the other side, the mitochondria is not a theory. It's truly the research has been published for over 10 years that Near maximum intensity exercise doubles the amount of mitochondria in your cells and triples the amount of, of output. It's measured by what they call cyclochrome C. It's, it's, uh, it's tripled in eight weeks' time when you do that type of exercise. So if people want more energy, the way to do it is change your body at the cellular level, and that's what Sprint 8 does. It changes your body at the cellular level by, by multiplying the number of mitochondria, which are basically called a nuclear power plants at the cell, cellular level. Then on top of that, we, you know, I know you're doing some interviews on anti-aging, and I'm probably hearing all about telomeres. There's a study published in Colorado that basically says for older adults, it's clear near maximum exercise, maximum intensity exercise, uh, which is basically what Sprint 8 is, uh, shows more promise to preserve telomere length than anything that can be done. Human growth hormone is really considered the fountain of youth. Do you agree with that? That's an interesting way of looking at it, and I understand why people say that. And from an exercise standpoint, when we target exercise to release this, this wonderful hormone, then you get all these uh, anti-aging properties, if you will. Your skin thickens by 7.1%, so you look younger. Matter of fact, when our nurses went through the program, we tell them, ladies, you're going to have people come up to you and make statements like, uh, have you changed your makeup? Because <laughs> it thickens your skin, and you can see when people are doing Sprint 8, after just a few weeks, their complexion changes. They look much healthier. So from that standpoint, uh, I can un- understand why they say it- it's growth hormone. It's probably a combination of that, several other things, but Sprint 8 also uh, releases dopamine and serotonin on, on every workout you get the runner's high. So it does so 
many wonderful things for us. And it's really, if you think about it, it's not that I figured out how to do a great program. I'm going back to this is the way children play. And we're taking this and we're making it a little bit scientific so adults can do it 20 minutes, three times a week. It's scientific play. And what we know, it releases this hormone that everybody calls the anti-aging hormone. Your book is so accessible. It's so clear and so easy to read. I noticed you didn't leave out anything about stretching. <laughs> something that most people do not want to do. And I noticed you said we don't have to stretch too long, but there's very specific things we really should be doing whether we want to or not. Talk just a couple of minutes about that. Well, flexibility is so important. If, and, and, you know, if you go back to the whole reason we train in the first place, you know, when we work out with weights, you're making your muscles stronger and tighter because you're slightly injuring them. And when they heal back, they heal back stronger and tighter. And so if you don't add the flexibility piece in that process of, of continuing on a regular basis, working your muscle to, to, uh, to, to strengthen them and to make those cells stronger and bigger, then you end up getting a lot tighter than you should be. And so stretching is just a fundamental part of that whole balance. And uh, I hate it. Everybody I know hates stretching, I think. I mean, there's a few people that like it, but I think they lie about other things, too. But now I'm just kidding about that. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sure you're right. It it, uh, it it does take time, but we put a 10 minute routine in the book that we recommend four times a week. We've tested it on over a thousand young athletes. In average case, they pick up four inches of measurable flexibility in four weeks. Uh, with their hamstrings and glutes on the typical old uh, box box reach test when they do the program. And so what we're teaching now for athletes is to do dynamic mobility type of stretching where it's short stretch holds before athletic competitions because when you do the 30-second stretch hold, which has been shown in the research to, to increase flexibility that lasts, and if you do that type of stretching before an athletic competition, it will actually make you slightly weaker uh, for about an hour and 15 minutes afterwards. So now the recommendation is is to use static stretching with 30-second stretch holds after training. Now, if you do it before, all that means is, all that means is you're not going to be able to jump quite as high or run quite as fast, which for some coaches with athletes coming back in the season, uh, when they are coming back to school, they should have been working out in the summer, but, you know, teenagers and young folks sometimes uh, have great plans they don't get to. We're going to do that tomorrow, and tomorrow never comes. But when they come back, we suggest to coaches to do static stretching early in the season when students come back to intentionally slow them down for about a week or two, then put static stretching at the end so they get the flexibility benefits of, of flexibility training and static stretching like that without injury and without slowing them down. How interesting how the whole paradigm and the current research is different. For example, I used to walk three to five minutes before I would go on the tennis court and get myself just warmed up a little bit and then stretch for 15 minutes and then go on the tennis court. So it's totally different. You can do light stretching. I think when some folks write, no stretching before, that may be an overreaction. You can do some, but if you use long stretch holes, that's when we know that it, it basically weakens you. I've had some trainers uh, a couple of years ago that were saying any static stretching before, that's what's causing all these injuries today. Probably a little overreaction on that one. And, and sometimes we as exercise physiologists do that. But uh, a little stretching before is fine. You just want to avoid the prolonged static stretching before because that's what, that's what we can do. But on the other hand, that 
flexibility. It's the static stretching with stretch holds that around 30 seconds has been shown to be the most productive. And the last part of this interview, I really want to hone in. I know that you have specially made exercise equipment, but for those of us who either A, cannot purchase it right now, or are a little bit nervous to go running at full speed for 30 seconds on cement, what is the in-between recommendation for how we get started? Well, the, the best way, uh, with, I mean, you can do high knees, uh, like a high knee plyometric where you're standing running in place and get your knees really, really high. Uh, any type of activity that will get you really winded in 30 seconds or less where you just have to stop at 30 seconds because you're recruiting fast switch fiber, moving fast, that, that forces your heart muscle to have to work harder to oxygenate all that muscle fiber rather than just a half of it. The slow twitch fiber will, will work. Uh, you could be on one of those little bitty inexpensive trampolines, for example. Uh, any type of exercise. So, uh, you know, you can release growth hormone climbing a tree if you can get winded in 30 seconds or, or, or less. And so uh, any type of exercise. But the key is you got to recruit fast-switch fiber so your heart muscle essentially tries to oxygenate a lot more muscle fiber. It can't do that. releases lactic acid, raise your body temperature to try to cool you off. And within that process, your body releases this hormone and that, you know, that it's illegal because it's, uh, it, it improves performance. Have people ever asked you if this protocol releases cortisol in the body? We've talked about that some, uh, and, and I am sure there, there's some, uh, uh, cortisol release during that. But what I think the body would tell us is, it handles that. That's somewhat a part of the process, but the body handles that naturally, and you get all the benefits without the other part. It could be the body releases some cortisol with exercise, but at the same time, it releases so much dopamine and serotonin that it overrides that. Fascinating. And that's something we don't really know yet. I'd love to know. I'd love to be able to research that uh, at some point in time uh, in the future. It's an honor to meet you, and I loved your book. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to pick up the book, Ready, Set, Go, Synergy Fitness for Time-Crunched Adults by Phil Campbell. Phil, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, please call me back. Let me know uh, your results. I will definitely do that. You can reach Phil by going to readysetgofitness.com. There's all kinds of information there for you, and also you can check out his exercise equipment at visionfitness.com. Yes. Thanks so much, Phil.